1: and I, I fell in love with that guitar that he was playing. It was really the most beautiful guitar that
2: I had ever seen. And I knew it must have cost him an arm and a leg. And uh, I was just blown away all night. Tom Hazelton is one of Fish's earliest fans. He was a student at UVM in the late 80s. The guitar he was referring to is Blonde Number 1. Paul Languedoc, a guitar maker from Burlington, Vermont, made it in 1987 using European hardwood, most commonly used to build cellos. Trey Anastasia would play this guitar exclusively from 1987 to 1996. And the next day, a friend of mine gave me
1: a cassette of Junta, and I think I listened to that every day for the next couple of years, and I really became a proselytizer for the band, and I told my friends at other colleges to check this band out, and people would come up and visit me and would go see the band and they started a residency kind of a residency at the front after that a bar downtown and they would play like three shows in a row every few months and I think I went to all those shows and it was a great great time and uh, the energy at those concerts was off the charts the bands playing was incredibly tight I would put in my obligatory hour every show
2: just watching Trey play the guitar. Yeah, the band really blew me away. Welcome to the season finale of Undermine. In this episode, we're going to hear from some of the fans who caught fish as they made the shift from a college bar band to a national touring act. They're gonna share their stories, their memories, and their insights as the band stretched their musical legs and sought to push their sounds outwards to more of America. Listen to this important message from our wonderful sponsors. As we've explored throughout season one of Undermine, Fish evolved from a quirky college dorm band into one of the brightest musical acts in New England. Through a dedication to their craft, a focus on exploratory and compositional songwriting, the band attracted fans who helped spread the word and introduce their music to new listeners. From the beginning, it was easy to dive all in with fish, to become obsessed with their music, and get fully immersed in their unique sound and lyrics. No show sounded the same, jams evolved, new songs emerged that defied explanation. And the band infused their initial history with mythology and intrigue to keep fans on their toes. Let's meet some of these fans and hear about their first fish experiences.
1: My name is Dan Purcell. And the first Fish show I saw was on April 20th, 1989 at Amherst College at uh, Humphreys House. I had a bunch of friends tell me, hey, this band is good, they're interesting, they're different, you know, you should check them out, including my roommate who was kind of a snobby music guy like I was. And so I want to say it was a Thursday night uh, and I had nothing better to do as typically was the case. And so I just sort of wandered over Apparently, there had been all these hijinks in the first set. The fire alarm had gone off uh, and the band got interrupted. And then when they they came back, they played uh, Fire, you know, Jimi Hendrix cover as a tribute to the the men of the fire department,
3: the brave men who had put out the fire, which there wasn't a fire. It was just a fire alarm. My name's Phil Bourne, and my first Fish show was in October of 1985. My friend Eugene Resnick, he uh, invited me to go see a show. Uh, I was a student at UVM and he invited me over to Slade Hall, which was the environmental dorm at UVM at that time. I was fortunate enough to live on in Wilkes on Redstone Campus.
4: Uh, My name is Lisa Ball and the first time I saw fish was in Telluride in 88. A friend of mine, uh, Mike Lynch, who um, lived in the little woodsy here, he was from Vermont and he told me that this band Fish was so good that I had to see them and he said they're better than the Grateful Dead (laughs) and so I was like okay well I'll see them.
5: My name's Neil Ringstad. I live in Telluride, Colorado, and I was lucky enough to uh, see the Fish 88 visit to Telluride, their first time leaving Colorado for a tour. The first show I saw was the Night of the Missing Fishman, which was night three of the run, and that was quite
6: an epic show. Stephen Messina, first show, January 27th, 1988. I started collecting bootleg tapes of the Grateful Dead and by 1990 I was starting to collect fish bootlegs as well.
7: Hi, my name is Mary Bogg. Uh, the first time I saw fish was at Johnson State College in the Bass Lodge. They weren't quite for me they were a little weird, I'll be honest. And after meeting Tim Rogers there at the time, a light guy at a Grateful Dead show, he convinced me to come back and give him another try. So my first full show, was at Nectar's in 1988 in April. You know, for me, the live experience was really where it's at.
2: Dan, Philip, Lisa, Neil, Stephen, and Mary, and so many more discovered fish in the mid 80s as a result of the grassroots marketing we've heard about throughout this season from people like Amy Skelton and Ben Hunter. As we've noted throughout season one, without this word of mouth marketing, the band's growth might have been confined to Vermont. This was before online message boards and social media, way before Zoom calls, and yes, even before Fish podcasts. Fish's music inspired people to tell friends and strangers alike, You gotta see this band live to get it. And that sentiment is not something that has changed over time. Even today, fans are telling their friends, When the world gets back to normal, you gotta see Fish. Here's Dan Purcell again.
1: It was just this sort of frantic wall of noise and couldn't really make much of it. It it sounded very different from sort of the music that I typically was listening to at the time. I was sort of into what they called in those days college rock, you know, sort of the precursor to alternative rock back before all the, the bands got signed. And I sort of had a very snobbish punk rock perspective, was not into hippie bands, thought the Grateful Dead was the lamest thing ever. And so it was really surprising when the second set started And I I just, I really did engage with the music um, because it was so unlike anything else that I was listening to and really anything else that I had heard up to that point. We got a Divided Sky Opener, a You Enjoy Myself, a very early version of Split, Open and Melt, um, and a Mike's Groove. But they also did Walk Away. uh, And at the time, I was just flabbergasted by that because I viewed that as like a third tier sort of classic rock radio song that, that I was surprised anybody really would bother to cover. This was sort of in the era when everybody was covering the Velvet Underground and the Stooges and trying to be very, very hip. And then uh, toward the end of the set, Fishman came out and they did Love You, the Sid Barrett song. And I just happened to be really, really into the Madcap Laughs at that point, the Sid Barrett record that that's from.
2: Here's Lisa Ball and Neil Ringstad talking about Colorado 88.
4: So they showed up in town. So, you know, not knowing this band at all or knowing them at all, we were all young and we were like, okay, well, you can stay with us. So they played at the Roma and The first night I ever saw them, I fell in love with them. Their funkiness and their silliness and just their amazing music and everything about them was just so intriguing. I fell in love right away. You enjoy myself being such a funky song and then the ending of it just being so wild and awesome and just so different than anything that I had ever heard. And it really captured me as just such a unique band.
5: Everybody's like, oh, you won't believe these guys. They, they sound like Zappa. So I met Trey. He was standing with Mike. And the first thing I said to him is, are you the leader of the band? Because I was really intrigued as to who would play Zappa style music. So I said, well, well, there there is no leader of the band. He said, cool. So we talked a little Zappa and he was kind enough to play
2: two Zappa songs for me that night. And here's Philip Bourne. What really
3: started to draw the connection for me to fish was the fact that they always play like a funky, whimsical, playful beat, and you can never figure out if, if, if they're for real or if they're messing around, um, if they're messing with your mind and you were just like out on some crazy, deranged limb and they were just playing with you or if you were part of the scene or the joke or, or what what the story was. And that whimsical, fun, playful nature that would just be inter- that is interspersed with the sheer brilliance of the musicians um, playing together is, is amazing.
2: As Dan, Lisa, Neil, and Philip all described, the wild amalgamation of sounds and styles from zappa to funk to noise to classical was all a part of Fish's appeal. One second you're deep in a King Crimson style jam, the next the drummer in a dress is playing a vacuum cleaner to a random Sid Barrett track. And soon after that, you're in a composed masterpiece. The gumbo of sounds and styles led to a particular moment of realization for so many fans that this band was different and that this sound needed to be experienced over and over again with more friends. This is why the band could show up at gigs with fans from New England to Colorado before they even ever recorded an album. But there was something more, something physical to add to the ephemeral magic that made Fish so special the trading of tapes, which allowed the band to find new listeners and spread their sound around the country without restraint. Once again, here's Neil, Philip, and Mary talking about hearing Fish through these tapes. I
5: made copies for everybody from these soundboard tapes, and so we had the five and a half nights of Fish tapes in our group, and we were addicted, hooked, loved it. That's all we had until 1990 when they came back, and that's what we knew of Fish. And then, of course, we got Hunter once in a while we'd get a random tape from somewhere but they were all terrible compared to what we had these soundboards and from having those and being able to listen their compositions were amazing yeah they were on par with Frank Zappa in my book
3: so back then i like bootlegs and Cassette tapes were pretty much what we listened to. So early tapes, Nectars, um, one from Hunts. Those were probably the standouts. I'm not going to say like nothing really musically stood out, except for Antelope and Lizards, which were what really pulled me into the music, the high energy. But we would listen to those tapes. Like I mean, I had an old van and you know a cassette player, and we just rocked those tapes and just driving around. And uh, we were talking about the band and. the question always came up like what bands are going to be next and it still comes up to this day looking for new music and we i put out there that fish was going to be the next grateful dead huge following people really into it
7: tapes early on. There were a lot of tapes. At the time they were playing the front, there was a bartender there. His name was Pete, and he was 6'11". Big, tall Pete, I called him. And he would always record the shows for me. So I could always get a copy of the shows. And I still have a few of them. There was also a guy named Dave the Unit Monster. I, You know, to this day, I don't know his last name. And he would also record the shows. And, you know, you'd bring him your 90-minute or 120-minute max And he He'd burn the tapes for you and mail them to you. So it was interesting. And there was always trades going on, you know. Oh, hey, can I borrow that one to record it? And here, I'll give you this one to record. And, you know, that was how you heard fish. And it was all alive for the most part.
2: and the proliferation of tapes led to a clear fan base of people who showed up at concerts people started to recognize their fellow fans as new friends
1: and it really seemed like everybody there had seen the band 10, 15 times before already, and so it seemed like I was kind of, even at that point, intruding onto a, a, into a club, um, you know, sort of a, a, a maybe gaining admission to a, a club that had predated, you know,
5: my knowledge of the band. Granted, there was only 12 of us watching them, but the connection was made, and I think, you know, they modeled themselves somewhat after, I, I hate to say it, the Grateful Dead community, as far as wanting to get their music out there and giving us tapes. And Paige always made sure we got tapes. And if we saw them the night before and we were going the next night, he would get us the night before was typically how it worked. And, you know, they did that grassroots exposure of getting their live music out there. And that is, is probably the best amount of networking.
2: The focus on tape trading allowed Fish to reach more fans. Part guerrilla marketing, part collector's lore. Fish tapes from shows you'd been to and those you'd heard about became something you coveted and sought after, while expanding your own network of fellow fans. What's more, every tape told a story, and every story contained more information for fans to better understand the world of Fish. With each new tape, fans more and more felt like they were being let in on a secret world. The tapes were the key that unlocked the gates. Here's Tom Baggett, who we first heard from in Episode 8
5: and i was like you know one of the only deadheads in the area all my friends parents were like hippies who were to northern vermont in the 70s and that wasn't the case with my parents so they rebelled by being metalheads and uh they were into gnr and I, I, when i came to uvm i was like oh my god there's people like me here you know who were into the dead and there wasn't a jam scene so when i heard that cassette it touched a lot of buttons like wow this is fresh this is something entirely new it's original i've never heard this before i didn't know that people were making music like this uh i
1: mean it was the 80s everybody was wearing loose fitting garments but it was it was not the sort of crowd that i typically uh saw at shows and so i felt a little out of place but you know the music started and then i just sort of forgot all about that But the one thing, too, that I, I did notice was that it seemed like, I mean, this band had a, a very developed repertoire of, uh, like I said, very composed songs, uh, intricate songs with a lot of parts, a lot of notes, a lot of meter changes. And the crowd was just with them every step of the way. And so unlike anything I'd ever heard and just very, very creative, there was, you know. I, I, I stopped worrying about being an outsider, being you know out of my my comfort zone, and just just sort of chilled
3: out and enjoyed the music. It was so much fun, and honestly, like all the all the experiences back in back then were just all unique. The fish was small, you know. You go into a venue, they'd have 20 people playing there, and just super high energy, and just you know the Maxell tape cassette dude with your hair flying back, you know, full speed ahead, it's just it's just amazing.
2: Around this time, David ZZYZX Steinberg began seeing fish. He was known to early fans and the band as Timer because of his stopwatch and clipboard that he used to keep track of the always changing length of fish songs and jams. Soon he was an ever present fixture on Fish Tour. Here are his initial thoughts from seeing fish in the late 80s.
8: The first was the very, very, very long boat up the poster's name that went on for at least a minute or two. Just the name I gave you. I loved you so much. I had to name you this. When I first looked into your kitty eyes, I knew this name had to become yours. And I loved you so much. No, it's not fluffy. And when they finally ended with Poster Nutbag, I just stopped and like, what? And now, you know, now it's not necessarily something that surprises people anymore because by the time without tapes or anything, it's just, that's the most weird thing I've heard. And He
4: said, kitty. He looked down, he said, I love you. I love you, hey. little
9: cat. And that is why I love you so much And that is why That's why I named you What I named you That's why I named you That's why, little cat, I gave you the name That name that I gave you I'm so glad That I call you I'm so glad that your name is your name is... Your name... Your name is... Why? Your name is... Your name is...
8: I call you! I call you by the name! I call you! I call you! And then later, during the narration, Trey said, and then Poster Nutbag jumped onto the white corduroy, shelf, and for whatever reason, that cracked me up. And I knew in that moment, this is a band that I was going to be seeing for a long time.
2: Philip Bourne was a UVM student in the mid-80s and saw some of Fish's earliest out-of-state gigs. He attended a random steakhouse gig in the backwoods of New Hampshire, organized by Amy Skelton which we heard about in episode one. Pull into the
3: parking lot and there's this old wooden ramshackled steak barn in the middle of the woods. That's a small sign in front and a few cars in the parking lot. So we roll roll into the show and there's there's probably like eight, six, eight other fish bands there. We all knew each other from previous shows and stuff in Vermont. So we go in and, and uh, hanging out, waiting for the band to come on. There's a little bar on one side of the room. It's an old, you know, New Hampshire restaurant on the side of a side of a highway. So nothing fancy. The uh, they decided they wanted to upgrade the, the, the venue, so they put in uh, a bar that was uh, made out of freshly rough-sawn pine logs with a still yellow tone to it. Probably five bar stools in front of the bar, and you know, a little bar behind it with maybe 20 bottles of liquor on the shelf. Then a, the band was set up in one corner of the uh, the bar. The whole place was probably I don't know 30 by 35 feet just very small. In the steak barn, it's small town, New Hampshire so it's Saturday night, Friday night it was like party time for the the older jet set in the rural New Hampshire. So there's probably I don't know, 20 people in there with their white hair and blue hair sitting there ma and pa quietly enjoying their steak dinner and and they have uh, steak knives out and they're like cutting cutting their steak and potatoes and eating them and uh, Fish comes on and just Starts shredding, you know, David Bowie and <laughs> typical show. They probably broke out of Peaches Ringalia somewhere in there. After after playing, and the, the, you can just see the people's jaws are hanging down <laughs> as Trey and Mike are just <laughs> cranking it out. So after a while, the, the people at the bar are sitting there, and the five guys with dipping their beers start shouting out for requests um, for the Beatles and the Aerosmith and all this crazy stuff. Trey and Paige are kind of looking over at them, they're looking at each other and they're calling out for the song so <laughs> so Paige starts playing Day in the Life singing it and uh, Trey, Trey starts inviting people up from the bar to come and uh, and sing at the microphone but being New Hampshire people are a little reserved and all taking them back and you know, getting called up I don't want to go up and play at that microphone over there I just want to sit at my bar and have my beer and so uh, the crew that was traveling with them they were, they we're all dancing our faces off dressed in hippie clothes and long hair the whole freaking bit so we start going up and singing the lyrics and it's kind of quasi rap style quasi musical style and the band's playing along with it we're just doing rotations through singing various random lyrics to uh to Damn the life
2: it didn't matter where fish played or who they played in front of the band was on a mission every night to bring an energized hilarious musically challenging and creative show to anyone who listened This spirit of showcasing the best of themselves, no matter who they're playing for, has followed the band throughout their career and is one of the reasons they're still gaining fans 35 years later. Let's hear once again from Dan Purcell about the connection Fish had with their audience and how this defined their growth early in their career.
10: The sort
1: of spontaneity and creativity and just like not taking themselves seriously was really remarkable. I mean, again, this was a, an era of bands that would not really talk to the audience or they would sort of, you know, grunt at them or insult them maybe, (laughs) you know, or or like, you know, Fugazi used to do, they would just come out and say, we're Fugazi from Washington, DC, you know, don't slam dance. And that would be it. And, and, you know, Fish was definitely a band that from the start, had a strong connection with the audience and, and just you know, wanted to amuse themselves and figured that if they amused themselves, the audience would come with them. Um, so, you know, they had a lot of faith in where their audience was willing to go with them, even that because it became clear that the band just didn't give a shit. You know, I mean, they they, they were sort of weird looking guys and Fishman was Fishman. You know, I, I don't know what he was wearing. I think it was before the dress era, but maybe he had on a different sort of dress type garment and, you know, horrible facial hair and Paige seemed like the normal one. And I, I just imagine that Everybody probably would tell him that and probably it annoyed him. You know, Trey had the full beard and bright, bright red beard. And, you know, they, they just they did not look like they were trying to impress anybody or, or um, be sort of stylish. And and I'm sure they would laugh at the idea that anyone would think they were. And so, so eventually that just sort of became its own virtue. You know, I mean, when a band is just really sort of doing their own thing, being themselves, not worried about it. You know, there's a great virtue in that.
8: My way, yes,
5: yes, way. It is he never came my way. Yes,
8: I don't way. know what. I'll do today.
2: As we heard in episodes five and six, fish taking the risk to leave Vermont for Telluride had a huge impact on them from that point forward. Their music and jokes landed favorably on Western audiences, and their playing thrived. Ever since their Colorado 88 gigs, the band has viewed the state as a second home, and they've always been able to count on dedicated fans showing up to shows in the state. After a quick break, we'll hear more from the fans who were there for that first run. Colorado has developed an outsized reputation among fish fans as a place to see amazing shows. That started, of course, in 1988. Here's Neil and Lisa to talk more about what those shows meant to them.
5: So they played the moon one night, and it was the most electric night of the six nights they played in Telluride. There was probably about 60, 70 people in the room. I was introduced to Trey earlier, a couple days earlier. Everybody was excited for me to meet him because I was the Zappa fan of town. And then the whole band came over to my place that night till four in the morning. Fishman, knowing I was a Zappa fan at about 3.30 in the morning, comes up to me on his knees and he's, he's going like this at me, he said, Ian Underwood was Frank Zappa's greatest influence. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized he's absolutely right. And I, I found that brilliant. We we connected on the level of Zappa, as did Trey and I. Paul Languedoc was at the house that night. And if you look in the Fish 88 liner notes, there's a picture of Trey with devil horns on. That's from that night. That That's about three in the morning in my living room. It was a fun night. <laughs>
4: Uh, Fishman decided to go for a hike and do a little partying on his way and he went to climb Ajax and he didn't get back in time for the show so Trey jumped on drums and they did a Jazz Odyssey set waiting for Fishman to show up. Then Fishman showed up. Fishman walked into the venue in shorts, barefoot, and a bunch of wildflowers. So then when they came back on stage, Trey tells the story of Fishman's hike up to Ajax, and that's when they go into the, the legendary antelope.
9: This could only be our drummer's maiden voyage into the wilds of the Telluride Mountains.
5: Leave the town and walk towards the mountain in the distance. Assume that you'll be back by 10 o'clock.
0: Walk farther into the distance, naively
5: thinking that you can climb the mountain. Climb the mountain before you. Pay no heed when your two friends each eat a hit of acid. Walk over the mountain and decide that you'll cut back the long
4: way. By the cabin. You know, those times were very mellow, and there was only probably a dozen of us there anyway, so we were happy with anything we could get.
2: To thank her for giving the band a place to stay during their Colorado 88 run, Fish personalized a tape for Lisa Ball and gifted it to her before they left. Their appreciation for all the town of Telluride stayed with the band throughout the years and it was evident in the band's special 2010 gigs in Telluride Town Park.
4: It's a cassette tape that just was a a promo tape. And they each wrote their little ditty on it. And I loved that thing, you know, the moment I got it. So I memorized what it has written on it. And, you know, the things they wrote were pretty silly. Trey wrote, uh, Lisa Pizza Matsutoshi's Mama, which I have no idea what that even means. Mike wrote, Lisa, you're the best white volleyball player in Telluride. (laughs) Fishman wrote, poke me again in your dog do. (laughs) And then Paige just said, thanks for letting us stay at your house.
5: (laughs) I mean, when they came back
2: in 2010
5: during soundcheck, over the loudspeaker, where's Lisa? Like, they just love her.
2: Back east, as the band continued to build off their excellent playing in 1987 and 88, fans who jumped on board early were noticing a band quickly on the rise.
7: You know, for me, the live experience was really where it's at. specifically remember a show at Green Mountain College in Pulteney, Vermont. It was freezing cold out. In between sets, we were outside and our beers were freezing in our hands. Talking with my friends, we all picked out a song that we really wanted to hear in the second set. And when they came on for the second set, one ride after another, they hit every song that we wanted to hear. And it was great. And then, you know, when they played the World Trade Center in Boston for New Year's, I had had tickets to fly to the West Coast to see the Grateful Dead, and I canceled it and went to see fish instead. And I remember there was three hundred people there, and it was the biggest fish show ever.
1: They, they they already had a very defined sort of sound and vibe, and they had their core repertoire already in place. And people responded to it. And uh, like I said, I mean, it seemed like everybody at the show had been there multiple times. What, what, the song that really connected with me, "Lizards," and you know, I, I found it sort of catchy and charming and everybody knew all the words. And, you know, that song has a lot of words in it. You know, it's it's sort of a torrent of words and everybody was singing along with it. I mean, many of the previous songs, like, you know, Week Upon Groove or or Yem, had, had hardly any words in them at all. And here you have, you know, verse after verse of this narrative and everybody's singing along with it. And um, it was evident that they had something that people really responded to.
2: So many shows so many memories. We all have those shows that resonate with us and keep us coming back for more. Do you recall the last fish show you saw that made you realize all over again why you keep following this crazy band? Let's hear again from the fans to hear what some of their favorite 80s era fish shows were. Stephen Messina, a college student in Vermont in the late 80s, remembers what it was like to hop on the bus as fish was on the rise.
6: My favorite memory from 1980s was probably my first show, January 27th, 1988, at Gallagher's Pub in Waitsville, Vermont. I just remember those guys rocked the house that night and was grateful that they had left a lasting mark on my soul as I continued to see them casually downtown Burlington starting in my freshman year at St. Michael's College. But by 1990, Divided Sky was my favorite song, and all those crazy song arrangements just blew my mind. I love that those songs could just become very exploratory, And I became hooked on the sound of fish.
2: We discussed the 1986 Halloween show at Goddard College back in episode two, as Philip Bourne tells us the show was an early glimpse into where they'd take the special holiday gigs of the future.
3: My friend, Chris Skalka, and I, he called me up on telephone landline at that time and said, hey, I'm going to see fish. And I said, sure. So we jumped in his VW Bug and we drove... Drove over from Baston over to to Goddard and Plainfield. The show was in a a barn, older building, and probably about, I don't know, 100 people there or something. But the Joneses warmed up for them. At the time, I was probably more into The Grateful Dead and and listening to their music and going to their shows. Joneses started out the show, uh, played their set. They were a great band, played great music. Fish came on after them. I have vague memories of uh, John Fishman coming out naked and playing the drum set for the set, complete just wild dance party and uh, fun scene. Um, I didn't know a lot of people at that show. It was, uh, I think, more folks from um, Goddard, which wasn't a scene. That was my first time ever going to Goddard College and, and checking it out. And it was an interesting, interesting show. I've been to a few more Halloween shows since then, but that was uh, very memorable, sweaty, funky, super high-energy fun.
8: My favorite show memory from the 1980s um, happened my first show. It was at The Chance in Poughkeepsie on October 28, 1989.
2: While David Steinberg now sees a majority of his shows out west, he was in New England in the late 80s, in time to catch some of the band's last gigs at venues like The Front in Burlington.
8: I was already a little bit confused because during Forbans, Trey um, said, now some of you might not know what's going on, and proceeded to tell the story of Gamehenge, which I was not able to follow at the time, but I wasn't confused at all before he told that. I just thought it was a song. And they closed the second set with Arpua. And there are two things about it that made me realize this is a band that spoke the same kind of um, humor language that I did.
2: By the 1990s, Fish would become one of the most important bands of the era, Redefining the way music was consumed and offering a truly alternative path for success in a music industry that was undergoing seismic shifts. But when did all these fans realize Fish was destined for something more? Let's hear again from Neil, David, Mary, Lisa, and Stephen for final thoughts on what it was like to experience Fish on the cusp of greatness.
5: Oh, no, we were we were addicted. We, we knew they were going places. Town was into it. And that's, of course, the night they walked the piano across the street and then walked it back. The thing I remember the most is, number one, they were our friends. They were interacting with the audience throughout the show, which you can hear from the tapes. They could talk to all of us. I think it gave them a sense of freedom, independence and intelligence in booking shows. <laughs> they were... Promised this Colorado rock and roll tour by Warren Stickney. And uh, it was all bullshit. But they, wing in a prayer, they've talked about it that they sat around the night before like, I don't know. And they're like, fuck it, let's go. So I think it allowed them to branch out and know that they were okay going to new places.
8: Almost instantaneously at my first show, already I was making jokes at that very first night of, I need to see this band a lot because when they make it big, I'll be able to say I saw them back when. By the middle of 90 and 91, I was taking set lists and keeping a set list notebook because I knew no one else was doing that then and those notes would be important down the road. So pretty much about halfway through the first show or so, I had a feeling that they were going to be huge one day they just had whatever it was i mean not just the music not just the personalities or just with a sense that this was going to work and at least this one time i was right
7: There was a moment when I was at that first Nectar show in April of 88, where I remember clearly, I believe it was during Yem, and I remember thinking to myself like, this band is going to be huge. And it happened. From that point on, they grew exponentially. They left the bars and went into the theaters. And it was amazing.
4: Um, you know, I didn't really see much of a future. I just saw them as a really fun band that I knew nothing about. And I just I really loved their just the fact that they were all just such fun human beings and they weren't afraid to to just be themselves and play whatever they wanted. That's what was so great about them and I think is still so great about them.
6: It was my senior year in college. I saw fish at the front in Burlington, Vermont. These shows were unbelievable. They were very cold February nights, and the band was red hot. Me and a few of my college buddies went to both shows, and we were pretty much speechless heading back to campus those nights. I knew this was the sound that would shape my life in every way. Just as The Grateful Dead had done since the 60s, I knew in my heart that one day, Fish would be as influential as going to see as many shows as possible to the end, and that's been my mission for 33 years.
2: As Fish made the leap from college bar band to national touring act, which so many bands hope to make, they expanded their internal family, bringing on Chris Caroda as their permanent lighting director and Paul Languedoc as their front of house sound engineer. Both would be considered extended members of the band throughout their careers with Fish. They impacted the band's visual and audio production, which helped to make the shows some of the most captivating in modern rock throughout the 90s and beyond. After a quick break, we'll hear from Paul Languedoc about crafting Trey's guitars and taking on the role of sound engineer for the band in the late 80s.
9: everybody, and welcome to the season finale of Songs and Slopes. This is the segment where we pair an album from the time period we're talking about with a delicious beverage from our friends at Upslope Brewing. This week, to cap it all off, we're going to look back at the entire decade of the 1980s and pick one of our favorite albums and pair it with an Upslope beverage. I'm going to kick it off with the 1981 Masterpiece Street Songs by Rick James. This album is full of stone cold classic after stone cold classic, of course, give it to me, baby. Super Freak, the legendary Super Freak, a personal favorite of mine, below the funk, parenthesis, past the J. Because of the reference to the city of Buffalo, where Rick James is from, which he declares is too damn cold and funky, I have to pair this with something made from something that is so cold and funky, of course, pure melted snow, and that's the spiked snow melt. I I love this album with some peach lemonade spiked snow melt. Dave, what about you? Give to me,
11: baby. So I am going to pair one of my favorite 80s albums of all time, R.E.M.'s debut album Murmur from 1983 with Upslopes Kolsch. When I think of Murmur, I think of understated brilliance. It's a pretty quiet record. At this point, Michael Stipe was still sort of mumbling or whispering most of his vocals. But at the same time, bands have been trying to figure out and keep up with Peter Buck's open Rickenbacker strumming for almost 40 years now, and none of them have been able to. It's just the kind of record that's perfect, and there's much attention to detail, and yet it doesn't sound very difficult, but it quite is. Likewise, Upslopes Kolsch, it's a difficult style to get right. It has to be easy drinking, it has to be refreshing and grassy and yet have a touch of hops at the same time Upslopes colst is all these things. It uses mosaic and lemon drop hops as well as some sage and Colorado honey and it's simply one of the easiest to drink most memorable Kolsch's that I've had in a long time. It's understated brilliance just like R.E.M.'s Murmur.
9: Thanks Dave. Brian what do you got for us?
10: All right, for my songs and slopes this week, I am going to be pairing Upslopes Citra Pale Ale, a floral, juicy, and brilliant 5.8% ABV beverage, with U2's. Ridiculous and over-the-top 1988 record, Rattle and Hum. I don't know if this is the best album of the 1980s, but it's probably the most important album in my life. Saw the documentary for this film in the theaters, and it stuck with me forever. It's got some of my favorite U2 songs ever on it. Hawkmoon 269, Love Rescue Me, and of course, Heartland. While also being over-the-top... Filled with Bonoisms before Bono became truly Bono, and an exploration of what it means to be an American from the perspective of U2. It's an excellent record, would pair well on the back porch with a Citra Pale Ale. Sometimes you wanna go a little bit over the top with the Citra Hops. You got the Citra Pale Ale pairing with U2's Rattle and Hum. Great, great time. I'm gonna throw it here to Jonathan.
0: I'm pairing Upslope's Craft Lager with Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. On Nebraska, Bruce Springsteen left the band and its wild trappings behind and made an album purely focused on songs, the singer, and the stories he has to tell. When it comes to beer, in these modern days of hazy IPAs and sours, you sometimes need to cut it all out and get a straight-up classic brew. Upslope's Craft Lager is made entirely with malted barley and subtle saaz hops, which gives the beer a light body and a crisp taste. What about you, RJ? Alright, is there an album that better captures the diversity and ambitions of pop and rock music in the 80s than Purple Rain? I don't think there is. Of course, this came out in 1984, and the essence of this album just feels like the 80s. It feels like money, sex, music. Prince said that Purple Rain pertains to the end of the world and being with the one you love and letting your faith slash God guide you through the Purple Rain. And uh, I'm still here for it. The pop and funk music combined with his shredding guitar solos and great songwriting, I just think it's awesome. Um, I think it captures this decade better than anything. And while I'm listening, I'm drinking a passion fruit and mango spiked snow melt. It tastes like Purple Rain. And although we know Fish didn't debut Purple Rain until summer of 1993, it obviously had an influence on them. So, dearly beloved, thanks for tuning in to Songs and Slopes, and thanks to Upslope Brewing for all the support.
2: For nearly 20 years, Paul Languedoc was the sound man for Fish, but he was so much more. Early on, he was also the band's technician and carpenter, as we'll see, and he was soon an indispensable and crucial part of the Fish road team. As sound man, he of course made sure all the levels were right and fine tuned the band's sound for every room they were in. He also recorded every show. But his connection to Fish started much earlier, when he met a certain guitarist in need of a new, very special guitar.
12: Time Guitars was a company started around 1977 by Alan Stack. It started off building acoustic guitars. He joined in a partnership with uh, Dick Willis, who was just there to provide uh, funds, you know. And Alan had this plans, has plans to start a great guitar factory and um, make millions of dollars, (laughs) which didn't quite work out. But by the time I came on, they had, they were hiring people and I had just moved to Vermont. I just heard of them, I was interested in building guitars. So I just asked around and I got an introduction and they hired me. So that would have been 1982. I had built um, three guitars at that point on my own. And the third one was pretty good, I still have it. It was an archtop jazz guitar, so I had that to show. I I was always working with my hands since I was a kid, you know, building things in the basement and that sort of thing. You know, I won the shop award when I was in junior high or whatever. (laughs) I was pretty handy. When I was in college, I started playing guitar. A friend of mine started to teach me, and I thought, I just looked at it, I thought it would be fun to build one, you know. So I got some how-to books and then went from there. At time they had they had stopped um, producing acoustic guitars and were they had gone over st- to straight to electric guitars. And they had a line of a couple of models of electric guitar. They were sort of derivative. One was sort of derivative of a Stratocaster, and one was more like a, a Les Paul. You know, they were distinctive in their own way. They weren't copies of a Strat or a, sort of on the same layout. You know, scale length and pickups and stuff, that sort of thing. At some
2: point in mid-1985, a young guitarist from an ambitious Burlington band came into Time Guitars and
12: requested Paul build him a specific guitar. You know, he had long hair, but then he had these bangs, and he looked kind of goofy, we thought. The story was, at that point, by the time he came along, Time Guitars was just kind of scraping by, so we started to take in repair work. The first one was a mini guitar. He came in fairly regularly. I remember, I remember he brought Fish in. I remember I met Jeff Holdsworth too. He was still in the band, but then Trey and Fish were planning this trip to Europe, and they were gonna they were gonna play street music. And I don't know, Fish had some bongo drums or something, and Trey had this little pig nose amp, and he wanted a mini guitar. So you know, I can't claim authorship of that guitar. Totally. I did work on it, but I didn't design it. Um, That would have been Chris Clark, who did the main designing and the electronics and stuff. I would have done probably a lot of the woodwork. It's a mandolin scale, so 13 and 7 eighths, I think that's a mandolin scale. Just one pickup, one humbucker with a switch that did a few things. And that guitar still exists in the Fish archives somewhere, I believe. I think Kevin Shapiro has um, charge of that.
2: When he got back to Burlington from his trip throughout Europe, Trey returned to Time Guitars with a request for Paul to build him another guitar. Meanwhile, Paul was continuing to hone his guitar-making skills, picking up insights and trends of the era in an effort to help keep Time Guitars afloat, all the while working on ideas for a style of guitar that felt like a dream
12: at the time. There was another guitar, another time guitar, that he bought later, full-scale guitar. That's when he sold the Ibanez, he bought a time guitar. He sold that when he bought the first guitar for me. Trey said he, he sent me photos of somebody thought he'd tracked it down and was sending pictures of it. I don't know, there were a number of those guitars made that were very similar. It was a stock guitar that he bought that we had made. I think it had a little blemish on it, so we gave him a discount. It was never a viable company. We never made money. <laughs> it was just kind of kept along, kept alive by the, the owner of the company, and he kept it dribbling along, but. So anyway, after Alan left, we changed the line and simplified it a little bit and made it more appealing. A couple of basic guitars, still a sort of a Strat-type guitar, which is the one Trey had was sort of Strat scale, double cutaway, three single-coil pickups. It also had a um, tremolo unit, a whammy bar on it. You had to have a whammy bar back then because Eddie Van Halen came along, and then so everybody had to have a whammy bar. Hendrix, yeah, well, I was predating that, of course. But Eddie Van Halen, in the early 80s, when he got, he got popular, and it kind of changed the whole scene. Up until then, it was mostly strats and and less balls, you know, that people played. Things started to diverge more, you know, in the guitar-building universe.
2: As we've learned throughout this season, Fish's universe is composed of unique musicians meeting in a unique setting, a lot of practicing, a lot of magic, and playing a lot of shows. But it's the action of the fans and the people you don't see on stage that also very much shaped the destiny of this band. How did a guitar builder become Fish's soundman, for example? And how different would the band be if they never met Paul?
12: Time closed, and then I was... I made a move to move back to Massachusetts, North Shore. But after being there a week or two, I decided I wanted to be in Burlington. And at that point, Tim, who was a musician too, he was actually living in a house with Trey and Trey's girlfriend. And so... When I moved back to Burlington, I was actually sleeping on his couch, looking for an apartment. That's actually how I became this their sound man, quote unquote, because um, I was out. Whatever, searching for an apartment. I came back one day and the band was actually rehearsing in the house, and I just stuck my head in and said hi. And um, they apparently were in a discussion about getting a sound engineer instead of just picking up whoever was at the club because they were playing out, you, you know, a little bit. And I stuck my head in and Trey trey looked at me and said, Let's get Paul to do it. <laughs> I said, Let's get Paul to do what? And they said, Do you want to be our sound man? And I was like, uh, Maybe, I don't know. I probably didn't even know what that meant, you know, I don't know what I even thought. But but I gave it a try, you know, it just came, it came around. Coincidentally, I also knew somebody, this was another fellow who used to work at Time Guitars, uh, Don Sidney, who was the sound engineer at the, the local club Hunts. I went and helped him out several times and he kind of, you know, showed me the basics of it.
2: As with the formation of Fish and the introduction of their lighting director, Chris Corroda, whom we plan to sit down with in a subsequent season, Fish applied a go with the flow, learn on the job method with their sound engineer. Believing they were better suited with good people they trusted on their team than an expert who didn't get what they were trying to accomplish, they worked outward from an internal circle, trusting the people they knew and growing their organization like a family.
12: The first time I really had to take time off was the the Telluride trip. And we didn't really even know if we were gonna do that until the last minute. So my boss was very flexible. He was very nice of him. And he let me take off whatever it was, a couple weeks. But, you know, it was getting harder. Fish fish were, they would do like once a month. They would play Nectars, usually a three-night stand, and it was usually Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday because they would always book the more popular bands on the least popular nights, you know. And I was still working, like I said, full-time. So I'd start off the week getting to bed at 2 or 3 in the morning, getting up at 6, going to work for three days in a row. So that was <laughs> a little rough. In
2: addition to his full-time job as craftsman, his increasingly full-time job as Fish's sound engineer, Paul took on more projects for the ever-growing Fish universe, including building many of Mike and Trey's speaker cabinets and many of the early road cases for their gear.
12: I also built a lot of road cases and things like that at that shop because I, I could work overtime. I, I would work late, you know, pay a small amount, hourly fee or something. To use the, um, the equipment in the sh- in that shop, I made Trey's first speaker cabinets at Time Guitars. I made several speakers for Mike at the cabinet shop, North River Woodworks. That was I built a bunch of road cases, a bunch of the first road cases, and then Trey's guitar. I you know I think we just were talking about it. He was interested in something different.
2: Ah, old reliable, the Marmar, blonde number one. If you saw fish between late 1987 and summer
12: 1996, this is the guitar that made you fall in love with Trey's tone. I designed and built a couple of solid body guitars and so I had the basic body design was sort of derivative of that just made it bigger and because we were talking about making it hollow or whatever semi-hollow I wasn't sure Um, and he's the one who talked me into making it fully hollow I was like well I think probably should have a block down the middle and he's like well why do you want to do that and I was like I don't know I don't know why I want to do that I guess that's because that was how it was done you know sort of more it's more like a um, mandolin like the bracing is more like a mandolin but the original guitar the original first tray guitar had a simpler headstock than what i'm using the one i'm using now which i have trademarked actually but
2: with his dream guitar complete everything was set for fish to realize their destiny and take over the musical world right
12: right well the first time he played it was in the shop i finished it and he came and we set up some speakers and He played it there, I think. That was the first time. And I don't remember exactly what gig, what the first gig was, to be honest. I was worried too, I think. Like maybe I created a a big lemon, you know. He just needed a little time with it, that's all. I think it was pretty clear within the first gig that he was happy with it. He was getting used to it. And not so much like, you know, the guitars that... um, Neil Young plays the big hollow bodies, you know, where they're just feeding back all over the place. I mean, he kind of likes that, I, I, I would think, but it's a smaller sound cavity, so it's a little more controllable. If you're, you know, playing with it, I think it tends to feed back in a nice way. Like, it doesn't have these honky, boomy feedbacks, you know. Hopefully it's emphasizing the harmonics and all of that of the note, and not some random, you know, vibration of the top here or there.
2: True to his persona as the quiet man on the sidelines controlling the sound quality of Fish. Paul doesn't gloat about his creation. A man of his craft, he's a tinkerer, happy with a
12: new creation and a satisfied customer. With modesty or whatever, with humility, I had my hands all over everything. I mean, there were all of these, you know, in the early days, I built almost all of the road cases. and. Some some of the speakers and all you know put together whatever equipment we had you know but it was just because we needed stuff and they were didn't have big budget and like worked cheap I guess you know at the time when he when he got that first guitar probably fall of 1987 or so you know like I said they were playing out but mostly local a few times a month we might make some foray into some college or something. And like I said, I, I was still working full time until 1989, so another two, three years. We weren't making enough money to really live on. Plus, they were still in college. So we really didn't start hitting the road in any big way until 1988, 89. In 1988, the shop that I was working in actually closed because there was this stock market crash in the fall of 1988, and that affected our business. And that they went out of business, and I actually took a job in another cabinet shop for another six months or so. I didn't really like that job, and it was finally like just about in the the spring or so of 1989, it was just about viable that we could uh, actually survive on take from the gigs, you know what I mean?
2: Around this time, Fish was bringing on Ben Hunter and John Paluska to manage their day-to-day operations, and Paul was taking on another project, building Mike Gordon's bass that he'd play through 1996 as well.
12: I guess I built him the first first bass while I was still at uh, North River Woodworks, shortly after I built the guitar for Trey. That bass didn't work out. It was a five-string bass, but I don't think they were that common at the time, and neither of us knew if the neck should be wider or if you just put the strings closer together. So that's what we did. We put the strings closer together, and it really wasn't playable. So then I built him another, another bass with a wider neck, and he played that for a number of years.
2: With their growth throughout the late 1980s and early 90s, a full-time gig for Paul emerged as the band's sound engineer. But what did this mean? How did his skills as a craftsman merge with his work as a soundman for a national touring act?
12: The club soundman. If if a band brings their own engineer, then the club soundman is there to help him or her, and they're usually very happy to do that. But if you don't have a sound engineer, then that person would step in. That's kind of how it worked. Some clubs would call ahead and say, "Do you have your own person?" and they wouldn't even have. You know, the the club engineer just wouldn't even show up. A lot of times, you get into these sketchy situations with electricity, and we started carrying our own PA system, a small PA system. It would have been '88 because we brought it to Telluride that year. What I did was I made a panel and a, a cable, a long cable, and I had, I brought a bunch of breakers with me for different types of panels, and you'd go into a club or whatever, and I'd put a breaker in the panel and wire our own electrical distribution center out of that. Just a panel with uh, some outlets off of it, you know. It wasn't goofy, I mean, it was, you know, if you do it safely, then it's, then it's okay. I never electrocuted myself. I did blow up the, um, the light show a couple of times.
2: Pretty soon, Fish realized that traveling with their own PA system was the only way they were going to present their sound consistently to their fans and new ears alike while traveling across the country.
12: Pretty much, we you know, a PA system, some monitors. They were small at first, then we upgraded. And this is when I say upgraded, it was still, it was older stuff that we were buying. But, you know, we added on to it. There were times where we'd, you know, show up in a gym, a high school gym or something. The PA that we had was really really stretching it to make it work. As we got into bigger places, we needed more PA. It wasn't generally to supplement. It was usually because, I mean, if there was a club and they had a PA system and it was better than ours, then I was happy to use it, uh, which was often the case. But, you know, like John Paluska would say, it was good, it was easy because, you know, he could book gigs and we were all self-contained. He didn't have to worry about promoter or whoever was doing it, hiring a light show and a sound system and all of that. We had this GMC cube van, and the first PA system was, like I said, it was small. It was just like a mid-high pack and then a W-bin on each side. But then we got more stuff, and then the cube van got to be riding lower and lower on the axle, you know. And, uh, and eventually that was just, we needed a bigger truck, so we got a 24-foot bobtail truck that was jump. And at that point, we were, that was 1980, 1990 would have been, and we were doing well enough. We actually bought a brand-new truck that was good, that was good.
2: Paul Anguidoc's final show as Fish's Soundman was August fifteenth, two 2004. As the band ended that chapter, Paul transitioned to building guitars full-time. Looking back on his life and career as Fish's Soundman for over a decade, he's blown away by the path his life took.
12: Well, I had the advantage of working for the same band for that many years, you know, so it was an ongoing experiment, and I could try one thing one night and the next night, i go, well, that didn't work. Let's do this, you know? So it wouldn't have been a career choice that I had in my head when I was in college, say. It wasn't like something that I, you know, thought about doing. I mean, I just did it as a lark, you know, at, at the at, at the beginning. And it wasn't my full-time job for, for a number of years, really. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think if you're doing sound for the same band for that long, you'd really have to be pretty dumb not to get it dialed in at some point.
2: Paul's experience of falling into the world of fish for decades, that's a feeling that many of us share. As we've explored during this episode, and in this season, of Undermine, most people who fell into the world of fish weren't looking for fish, but for a variety of reasons all of us, in one way or another, got caught up in the magic and swept into the vortex of following fish on the road. We know that the fish shows of 1983 through 1986 showcased the foundation of the band's boundless creativity and endless desire to experiment. Their earliest compositions proved their desire to break from the norms of music at the time and try to communicate with their own unique voices. They unintentionally crafted a mythology which drew their fans in further. They pushed themselves to transcend their influences. They never took no for an answer and did everything they possibly could to showcase their sound and ideas in front of more and more people. The stories you heard in this episode from fans as well as one of their core crew members comprises a rock history like no other. How did a college band from a small city not known for its music scene become the most popular band in New England by the end of the 1980s? How did this band find themselves poised for national touring success throughout the 90s and beyond? How is it that we find ourselves talking about this band decades into their career while still discovering more about them? How is it that all of us collectively sit on the edge of our seats waiting for the next time we can hear, breathe, and feel fish. We at Undermine are going to keep digging until we find the answer. Thank you to all of you listening to Undermine Season 1, The Early Years. It's been an incredible joy for us to bring this show to you over the last 10 weeks, and we're so excited for where this show is going in subsequent seasons. In the same way that Fish couldn't have built their career without their audience, we couldn't have made this show without you, our listeners. Thanks to everyone who has listened, commented, shared, and written us about the show. We are grateful for all of you. In Season 2 of Undermine, we're going to shift gears a bit and turn our focus to you, the listener. We will explore the Fish community in depth and try and better understand who we all are, why we're all here, and what role we've played in the growth and development of Fish over the last four decades. We'll tell stories about the experience of being part of this community, talking to lots of different fans. We'll dive into subcultures within the scene and aim to better understand what makes the fish community so unique and why the energy around fish has only intensified throughout their career. We hope you join us for season two of Undermine coming summer 2021. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance by Noah Eckstein. Production assistance by Nick Sejas, Christina Collins, and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastri. Art by Mark Dowd. A very special thanks to all of our guests and interviewees. We'll see you all next season.
9: Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Revenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks With Johnny, streaming everywhere now.